Print on Audio, the podcast for writers and all who are interested in books, literature and the printed word. Write on Audio has moved to a weekly format, splitting our content into shorter themed podcasts. Please be sure to subscribe in your favourite podcast app so you don't miss any of our editions. Write on Audio Interviews inspiring you to write by sharing the experience of prominent authors. Louis de Bernier is the best-selling author of 11 books, most notably the 1994 novel Captain Corelli's Mandolin, which propelled the author to international recognition and spawned a highly successful Hollywood movie adaptation. De Bernier has also produced three poetry collections, a play, and two collections of short fiction. We're delighted to share our interview with Louis de Bernier now. The interviewer is Wright-On's Ethna Cullen. So that's my first question. Where in the world are you? Well, I was in Switzerland last week, oddly enough. I, I did a festival in Gestadt. No, I live in South Norfolk, I, I, in the Waveney Valley. So I've been here about more than 20 years now. In Bungay, is it? I'm not in Bungay. I'm in the countryside between Bungay and Halston. Um, no, we, had, we had actually had a holiday up there in the autumn, and I think Bungay's gorgeous. It's such a nice town, but beautiful, yeah. beautiful Suffolk countryside. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, actually, I'm in Norfolk, and we spit across the river at Suffolk. But um, ah. and Suffolk, we, I agree, Suffolk is actually a little bit prettier than Norfolk. I, I do concede that. And you've been it's there quite a while. Yes, I, I, I've been here since the millennium. Okie doke. But you have lived in a variety of places, haven't you? I have. My, my father was in the army, so we were shunted all over the place when I was little. I mean, when I was eight weeks old, I was flown out to Jordan in a bomber and had to live in a tent with my mother. Then we, then we were in Cyprus, which obviously I don't remember. Then we were in bases all over the country. Yeah. And they, they settled the event. They lived in Orpington and then they lived in Surrey. And I, I always used to say I come from Surrey because we settled there when I was eight. Right. Uh, but now I've been in Norfolk all this time. I say I come from Norfolk. And I did live for a year in Colombia, out in the countryside, on a, on a ranch, on a hacienda, I when, be I was, asking, when I was 19. I should be asking you about that in a moment. You probably can guess. Mm. Um, so you talked about all those places, and I'd like to mention not, notwithstanding as well, because, <clears throat> sorry, you based that in Surrey as well, didn't you? Yeah. So do you think that your world travels, you're a bit of a gleaner, you're a bit of a uh, somebody who picks up stories all over the place, or... Or, 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 just, or just lives the moment. Oh, yes. If, if anybody tells me an interesting story, I just say, can I have it? And they nearly always say yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best ghost story in uh, Notwithstanding was actually t- from, I got from a vicar in Buxton. <laughs> I was sitting next to him at a meal and he told me this riveting ghost story. So I just said, can I have it? And he said, yes. Um, I, I'm, I'm, a vicar's allowed to believe in ghosts. Holy Ghost, I suppose, yeah. Uh, well, as one of their jobs is exorcise, it isn't one of their jobs, uh, laying, isn't they call it laying spirits? Isn't that one of their, used to be one of their jobs? So they'd, they'd be a good source for ghost material. Brilliant. But he was in Buxton, not, not Surrey. Because... Um, no, it's like the, there's a story about a man, um, about a mole man, for example, uh, in Notwithstanding, and he, he was actually a, a, a local man around in Norfolk. So... Um, I, I wanted to catch the spirit of the place rather than the ver- veridical detail. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because 
Was that the first novel you wrote that was set in England? Oh, the, it's a collection, isn't it? Was that, was it's a collection that, of stories, yes. Yeah. Was that your first English one? Um, no. A, a Part of Zella's Daughter was set in London, in Archway, but most of the story actually was in Yugoslavia. Right. <laughs> because that's, that's one of my questions. Um, I've, I've just written down, because obviously I've had a, a little look through the books. I've read a few, but not, not, not as many as you've written, obviously. And I picked out Turkey, Ceylon, Sri Lanka, yeah. Australia, Peshawar, Canada, Yugoslavia. So the world seems to be your source material. I, I mean, have you done that deliberately? Um, it's completely deliberate, yes. I've, it, it might just be old-fashioned in British imperial self-confidence, but I, I, I feel pretty much at home everywhere in the world. I've, uh, you know, I, I pretty much get along with everybody. And my main mission is to find good stories. So if, if you find a good story, you just have to do the background work um, to, to, to do it authentically. I mean, my Turkish novel took me really about 10 years because I wasn't confident that I understood I knew Turkey as well as, for example, I knew Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I only really got going on it when I did feel that confidence. Yeah. Um, but but re- really, I'm, I'm just a story collector and I'll do the background work I have to do. Yeah. And that leads me into the question that I, I, I preempted. What actually inspired you to write the South America trilogy, which incidentally is a real favourite of my husband? He loves it. And you were, only, you were only 19 when you lived there. Uh, yes. Um, I, I had made a mess of being in the British Army. I went to officer training and I only lasted four months. And the, because my, 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 I come from a military family, my, my parents were very disgusted and dismayed. And my father told me that I would be a failure all my life. Uh, which I reminded him of that recent, uh, just before he died. And he said, oh, I meant if you carry on like this, you'll be a failure all your life. Um, now I've forgotten the question. How, how, um, the, the trilogy, what was the inspiration for it? Because you were obviously working well, on the farm, weren't you? Yeah, I spent a year uh, on a hacienda in the countryside in uh, Colombia. And I was, I was teaching the children on the ranch in the morning. And the idea was to try and get them all up to O-level standard. Um, and then work then I would work on the ranch in the afternoon. So I had three horses, you know, and I know how to lasso things. And I, I even know how to use um, a revolver. But um, uh, when I came, I was, I was there at exactly the right age when I was still deeply impressionable. And it was really amazing to see caimans and, you know, um, yellow whippersnakes and uh, all, all these extraordinary animals and birds and plants that they have. And, you know, avocados, and I'm not kidding, they had av- avocado pears the size of rugby balls. Mm. Extraordinary. And, and uh, the culture, obviously, is totally different from Britain. Um, when I came back to Britain, I went to Manchester University, and I just felt it was just so dull and depressing by comparison. I really, really hated it. And I didn't, I didn't really feel British again for many years. Um, but my little sister rang me up when I was at university and she said, I've come across this incredible writer and he's Colombian and you've got to read him. And he's called Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> and of course, it was Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And so I read A Hundred Years of Solitude. And for me, it, it actually did pretty much encapsulate the feeling that I had when I was in Colombia. 
And uh, so and for the next 10 years or so, I didn't read anybody except Latin Americans. All of them. I, I, all my generation, my generation were reading Martin Amis, you know, sort of cynical stories about people in North London that I actually didn't give a shit about. <clears throat> and um, but I was reading people like Mario Vargas Llosa and, um, you know, Cabrera Infante, all sorts of names I can think of. And, and they, they so and I have a theory that you tend to get out what you put in. Mm-hmm. We're very like computers. You put in a lot of stuff. You get the same you get the same stuff back out, but uh, but um, metamorphosed. And that's what happened with my Latin American trilogy. I think it was it was all my reading and my and my memories of Colombia, sort of just pouring back out. And I, I wrote I wrote the first one when I was really banged up in my bedroom with a broken leg. I, I smashed my leg up in a motorcycle crash. Like I couldn't go anywhere or do anything. Um, and that I was in plaster for six months. And during that time, I wrote the first novel. Brilliant. Yeah. It was a lucky accident, really. I'm very grateful to that Russian motorcycle and the hole in the road in Merton. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And also, I mean, I'm going to ask you just very briefly, I don't want to stay on the, 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 the trilogy for too long, but mm. the, the storytelling is bizarre. I mean, um, I've got his name here. Uh, the, the cardinal giving birth to a, 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 an unreliable object. I mean, where did that come from? It came about because at the time, Guzman, uh, Cardinal Guzman, sorry, yeah, Cardinal Guzman. Uh, yeah. I, I was I was living with a woman who worked at St George's Hospital in Tooting, and they have a collection of freaks and things. Oh, she right. she told me about Teratomas. Which, which is uh, an unborn twin inside its twin. And uh, they, they, they have all the human parts, but in totally the wrong order. It's quite grotesque, you know. They've got hair and eyeballs and everything, everything in the wrong place. Yeah. And of course, they, they, can get, they can get very large or remain absolutely tiny. So I owe that story to, to um, my girlfriend, Caroline. Brilliant. Because it, I mean, it really is. Once you once you've read that, it's just like an image that that doesn't go away. Really, it's quite quite, quite, quite it's, a strong it's, one. It's a brilliant metaphor for the evil we have inside us somehow. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely, brilliant. Well, I'm going to ask you first of all, how did you get on in lockdown? How did lockdown suit you? You, you, you obviously had a rich seam of, of of work when you had your leg in plaster. How did you get on in lockdown? I didn't really do any more work. I did the same amount. But the, the thing is. I work from home anyway. I've got I've got about two and a half acres of land and a big house. And I can I could go for as many walks as I wanted without being spotted by the police. I was just very annoyed about not being allowed to go fishing. I thought that was incredibly stupid. But, um, you know, I I have two children. And really, the children and I were locked up here. Uh, but without actually feeling locked up in any way at all. I mean, I mean, it would have been dreadful if I'd been living in a flat in Brixton. I mean, that I think I probably would have killed myself. Mm. But out, out in the Norfolk countryside, it made virtually no difference. Um, mm. one, one thing it did do, though, is it's made me less self-confident about travelling. I was actually quite frightened to go to Switzerland recently because I hadn't done it for so long. Of course, it, can, it turned out to be a doddle. Um, we were talking about the South American trilogy. Um, I just wanted to go back and talk also about your um, your love of history. 
Yeah. Is, is, that, is that a big influence on your writing? I'm interested in history for its own sake. My, my father was very interested in history and he definitely passed it on. I, I, I had an extraordinary um, history teacher at my first school, Major Nelson, who had been a Gurkha and he'd been in every single lesson of history or geography began with, when I was out in India, and we, we, and we get amazing with all these stories about the black hole of Calcutta and so on. So I owe a lot to Major Nelson, but mainly I think um, being a bit of a magpie, I, I, I read history really, I get looking for interesting stories. As everybody knows, what actually happened is usually far more interesting than anything you can make up. Yeah. <laughs> I also, I'm, I'm going to give you a quote that I got from you. you, you I, I read somewhere that you said something about you weren't interested in kings and queens. I said, yeah. yeah, I said history ought to consist of the anecdotes of the little people caught up in it. And are they easy to come across? I know you're a story collector. Well, the easiest thing to do is to go and interview people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done a lot of interviewing people. Uh, I mean, I interviewed a historian in, in, in Sri Lanka, for example, when I was writing um, So Much Life Left Over. Professor Kingsley, um, Kingsley da Silva. So I spent a whole morning with him. I'm, I'm very keen on interviews. Yeah, I mean, he he told me all sorts of interesting and useful stuff, you know, such as how you educated the mixed race children of the planters, that sort of thing, you know, which I wouldn't have known otherwise. No, and they take um, they kind of take you in a different direction if they're telling you something that they know about, don't they? Yeah. I mean, my, 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 when my parents were alive, they were a very useful archive. I was always ringing them up to find things out. I'm, I'm, I'm rather lamenting the shortage of very old people now because obviously I'm getting quite old myself and they're no longer that much older than I am. Yeah. When, when, I, when I started out in my 30s, there were people who vividly remembered the First World War. Yes. Mm. Oh, it's, it is. It's, it's, it's going to become less, less easy to get those stories, although... I think a lot of people are recording oral histories, aren't they? Well, they are. And, and writers who are starting out might, might even find people as old as me interesting. You never know. I'm going to do um, what everyone does. And I'm sorry if, if, if you don't want me to, but I know that everyone that I've spoke, said uh, that I'm going to talk to you has said, oh, Captain Corelli. Mm. So I wanted to ask you, did, it, did, it, did the success of Captain Corelli take you by surprise? It, it was, in the end, very disruptive to my life, but um, it happened so slowly. It happened over a period of several years because it was, um, it, it was a word-of-mouth book. Yeah. Um, so it, it happened over three or four years, all this sort of steadily mounting sales, you know, until I went to Waterloo Station once and there was a whole shop with nothing else in it. I mean, it was extraordinary. Um, what the the worst thing I think was um, the demands on my time, where people wanted me to go to festivals and interviewing me, and um, I did lots of trips for the British Council, for example, which which were fun but relatively pointless. But because when you got to the other end, it was always expats who came to the events. Um, mm-hmm. And but artistically speaking, it was very very nerve wracking and difficult. Having everybody expect me to write the same thing again, but totally different. That's one reason why it took me 10 years to come up with Birds Without Wings, which actually I think is a much better book. It, 
My, my original, my Captain Crowley's Mandolin was my original attempt, you know, to, to have a go at War and Peace. Yeah. And I felt it didn't quite make it, but I thought Birds Without Wings actually did. Okay. In, 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 in Turkey, people, lots of Turkish people have told me that they think it's their War and Peace and they're using it to teach Ottoman history in some of the universities. Oh, that's fantastic. So, and, and of course, both of that wings is, is related to Captain Corelli because it's got one character in common, uh, Drasula, the, the, um, who, who originated in Turkey. So, um, no, I am actually, I'm very proud of, of Captain Corelli's mandolin. And when, when I read it now, I sort of can't believe uh, that, I, that I had the ingenuity and sort of energy to do that. And but the most striking thing for me is that the book is is, is full of light. You know, it's 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 like being on Catalonia. There's a lot of light in that book, and I, I haven't been able to capture that light again. And it's funny because so many people went to Catalonia on holiday as a result of reading the book, didn't they? Yeah, they still do. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So you've obviously captured that that spirit as well. No, it's interesting, and it's interesting that you, you said it's this. This is um, just by the way. I was teaching at the time. Uh, at the time, it was very successful, mm. and I probably am quite naive. But I, I had a conversation with someone where I said, "You know, if we could get our gifted and talented kids to read books like Captain Corelli, they would learn a lot about the world. For example, about what happened in Greece in the Second World War." And the two people I was talking to were like, oh, "Don't be disparaging." But I think they were wrong. I think if you if you get that little cultural nugget then it helps you to understand things and you can go off and learn more about it if you want to. Yes, that's exactly what I think. Yeah, so I think, I mean, in, in that respect, it was a bit war and peacey for me. So that's quite... Yeah. Well, mo most people outside of Greece didn't, didn't have a clue about what happened there in the Second World War. No. It's actually... Yeah. Very, it's actually very interesting and the time's very bloody and tragic as well. Yeah. And we, I wanted to link that in because, as I said, our team is about worlds apart. Yeah. And um, we were also, Madeline and I, when we were talking about this interview, we were wondering if you might have a view on how Captain Corelli kind of fitted in with connectedness and overcoming struggle and, and conflict and coming through it. Were you thinking about that when you wrote it? Um, I think I, if my angle on it really was that I'd found a Romeo and Juliet story, which uh, which hadn't really been told properly before. Mm. So, obviously, you know, with Montague's of Capulets, well, for me, that was Italians and Greeks. Um, except that um, in that part of the world, anyway, the Greeks and the Italians had pretty much a common cultural heritage. I mean, the, the Ionian Islands used to be Venetian. Yeah. Um, and there are lots of Italian words in the language. They, they, for example, they play polyphonic music where the rest of the rest of Greece likes monophonic music. Um, the, uh, they've got the same dishes that they like, such as sofrito, which is actually <laughs> slightly different in Italy than it is in there. there. So um, I, I, I was thinking, I was thinking really of how well, as one of Chaucer's characters says, "Love conquers all. Love, con love can conquer everything." And, and of course, what what brought the, those Greeks and those Italians together in the end was the German massacre of the Italian soldiers, where literally hundreds of Italian soldiers were kept uh, were, were given sanctuary by Greeks, 
they they basically dressed them up as Greek peasants and put them to work in the fields so they looked like everyone else. Mm. So p- people who had arrived as sort of conquerors ended up being given sanctuary by the conquered. As I said to you, I visited Crete a few weeks ago and I didn't know anything about the history of Crete. Oh, yeah. But that's got this. And we, we didn't, like, we just went for like a reading books kind of holiday. But the, the place you were staying, the name of which is out of my head at the moment, has a Venetian style harbour. Yeah. And in the little town that we were staying in, there, there were underground tunnels where people were hiding when, when the, uh, the Greek, when the invasion came. Mm. You know, similar kind of thing. People helping each other to hide in broad daylight and so on. It was quite an interesting. I, it was again, it was something I didn't I didn't know about at the time. But I'm, I mean, I asked you about connectedness, and you just exactly you, you've answered the question exactly because I, I didn't know all. I didn't think about all that connectedness being there before the Italians actually arrived in Greece. And, and, and a lot of what I'm doing is is trying to encourage people to face up to the past. Yes, that's a really good way of looking at it. And especially with the ending of the book where you have something has to be reconciled. I think that I think that's what everybody loves about it as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, I've got a couple more questions. I wanted to ask you about your poetry because I don't think people think of you as a poet because you've actually had several volumes published, haven't you? And um, I'm just wondering, is poetry a big part of your life? It's probably bigger than prose. I mean, when I first started out, I, my intention was to be a poet. And I, I, I sent a poetry co- collection to an agent who said, um, I don't like poetry. I don't get poetry. I don't do poetry. Uh, there's no money in poetry. Send me something else. So if, eventually I sent her my first novel, thanks to the motorcycle crash. And the poetry somehow got sidelined. I came back to it, I suppose, 10, 15 years ago when I suddenly realised that I needed a stronger technical grasp of how poetry worked before I could make my poems poetry rather than just chopped up prose. And so I I made a point of, well, basically studying metrics and things like that. And that, once I had that under my belt, it was was just liftoff, you know, and I I suddenly, I could look at any poetic line and tell you why it was clunky, you know, when I couldn't before. And, um, I I love doing poetry readings. I mean, I, I my poems are often stories. They're, they're, they're usually quite emotional. And I always know when a poem's any good because when you finished it, the audience sighs. <laughs> you must have had that experience yourself. Oh, I wish. And, I wish I'd had it as many times as you. Well, they and sigh. Incidentally, you know. when you talked about how boring it is to go on book tours and be fated. Madeline and I were probably like dripping with envy. If anyone invited us on a book tour, we'd be really... Oh, no, it's not boring. <laughs> it's not boring. It just stops you working and takes your mind off what you should be doing. No, no, I, I loved the book tours. If I, if I didn't love them, I wouldn't have done them. You're going to hate this, but I found this quote about you, that you were, um, you're described as a polyglot, a bibliophile, a musical virtuoso, oh, that's exactly. and historian. Do you relate to any of them or none of them? I like, I mean, virtuoso sounds pretty good. I'm not a virtuoso. No, I'm, I'm, I would put my musical standard at about grade six, but it's, that's about the level of sophistication that most people can actually tolerate anyway. Mm. You know what I mean? I I can, I can play anything I want to play, put it that way. That's good. And that's in terms of instruments as well. Um, 
I used to play lots and lots of different instruments, but I've been trying to cut it down because you can't be good at everything all at once. It's just not possible, you know. So, for example, I, I've recently stopped playing the clarinet. Hmm. But I still play classical guitar, flute, and mandolin, and pretty much with anything with strings and frets. Where does your passion for music come from? And does your passion for music always fit in with your writing? My last agent used to worry that music was interfering with my writing because I was wafting around the place doing lots of concerts. But the thing is, I've only ever written when I feel like it. So if I'm doing something else, it means I don't feel like it. Yeah. Um, it didn't, it didn't, I don't actually produce any less than any other writer, I don't think. No, I don't think so. Um, I, I, I rely entirely on the sort of energy that comes from inspiration. And very, an idea will you often niggle at me for weeks until I just have to sit down and do it or else it's going to annoy me to death. Um, I don't have any sort of routine where I sit down at nine o'clock and work to one o'clock, you know, the way that some writers claim they do, but I think they're liars. Um, so I, I don't think it interfered at all. Um, what was the other part of the question? I'm just wondering where the passion for music came from. Oh. Well, when I was a tiny boy, I loved military marches. I, I used to stomp around. I used to stomp around the room to, you know, the, the band of the Royal Marines. Um, and my, my mother was, loved music. She was actually a very good natural piano pianist. Sometimes she would play the piano to make us go to sleep. Uh-huh. And um, she really introduced me to classical music. But, you know, the, these, the, this kind of enthusiasm is incremental, isn't it? I mean, I, sh- I shared a room at a study at school with a friend who, was, who suddenly got into classical music. And that was because we had a mutual friend called Herbert Duplessis, who was an extraordinary piano player. You know, it's these things, you you just sort of accumulate influences as you go along until suddenly it amounts to something. And I I loved the um, the singer-songwriters who were so famous and successful when I was young, people like Tom Paxton and Paul Simon and Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan, you know, I loved all of them. And so that meant I had to learn to play the guitar, didn't it? Obviously. Back then, the only way you could get a girlfriend was to play the guitar or have a car. If you, if you had both. You, <laughs> so, and of course, so you, you get the guitar because you want to learn those songs and be cool. And then you fall in love with the music and you play it for its own sake. And as time, as time went by, I got interested in ragtime, baroque music. Um, I, I love traditional music from pretty much all over the world. Um, especially Latin America and Greece and Turkey. Um, and, and so now, you know, music's, music's an enormously important part of my life. And I've, I've recently been recording all my songs that I've been writing since I was about 20, mm-hmm. younger. And not, not really with any idea of becoming some sort of, you know, I don't want to play the O2 arena, thank you very much. Do you, live near, do you live near Ed Sheeran? Uh, yeah, he's in but I don't know him. I know uh, he lives. He lives nearby. Yeah, I know. But I don't. I don't want to be. Um, I, I just. I just want to play village halls, and I want to leave something behind for my children to listen to when I'm dead. Well, I was just thinking about any of your characters. That do you think that any any character that you've written might be an interesting one to to recommend to readers when we're living in like times of conflict and times of uncertainty. 
Well, my, my favourite character is Dr. Yanis from uh, Captain Credit's Mandolin because he, he, he's very wise. He, he understands history and he also understands the emotions. He understands the heart. You know, his advice to his daughter is the sort of advice that I would hope to give to mine, you yeah. know, about the nature of love and so on. Um, it might be nice I, to get in the same room as Putin then, mightn't it? <laughs> oh, well, you know, I... I don't know if any of my characters honestly have much to say about Putin, but no, I was you, just can, you can you can see if you look at the way I satirize Mussolini in in Captain Credit's Mandolin with that, that sort of extraordinary megalomania and paranoia and self-deception. I, I, I think Putin actually believes his own propaganda. I'm sure he does. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he believes his own idiotic theories about greater russia yeah and and holy mother russia and russia's civilizing mission you know we used to have a similar delusion didn't we i'm sure he believes all that but and it it, it would be comical if it wasn't so so sort of evil in practice but i i don't think any of my characters really maybe maybe my character mustafa kamal you know ataturk in in birds without wings mm-hmm. he's he was the ideal dictator if you know what I mean, he would be an example. I mean, he he thought the whole point of his dictatorship was to set up a functioning democracy. Yeah. And he actually managed to do it. Have I got a couple more questions? Oh, yeah. How do you, you've told me how you write. You just write when, when you've got something to write. Mm. You, yeah. don't do that, you don't do writer's hours or nine to five or anything like that. No, consequently, I don't do writer's block, so I don't have to do writer's anxiety. Well, that's a really good idea. And, and drafting. <laughs> do, you, do you do many drafts? Um, I used to before I worked on a computer, but now, now you, you redraft continuously, don't you? You hop all over the place. Yeah. And, um, so re, the, old, the old way of redrafting, no, but the new way, definitely yes. Which is quite good as well because... Um, if you if you get someone to edit, because uh, I know when I because my books are self published and mm. I, there's somewhere where my lovely brother spotted that I'd cut and pasted something twice without without having read it noticed it when I proofread it. So the joys of having an editor must be alone. well. You, you are your own worst editor. It's uh, you should always try and get someone else to do it. Absolutely, yeah. That's a, that's a big learning curve as well. I mean, you can have a character called Charlie and for some reason later on in the book you're calling him Chris and you don't even notice. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. I think I've come to the end of the questions. Oh, oh your next projects. Next project. Oh, well, my next project. You, you yeah. know, I've, I've made this name for myself as a historical novelist. Yes. Well, my next novel is set in the future. So my publisher is totally horrified, obviously. And it's it, it, it's actually this uh, swings back to what we were talking at the big, about at the beginning. Um, it, it's about I recently became interested in something called quantum cryptography, which is uh, code makers and code breakers being able to use these modern computers that work on the principles of subatomic physics, where 
a code that a conventional computer would take 3,000 years to crack only takes a couple of minutes. And I realized from reading about this that none of our codes are safe or will be safe in the near future, which means that anyone with sufficient malice or skill or ingenuity would be able to really mess up absolutely everything and plunge us back into the Middle Ages almost overnight. And I, I wanted to write a novel about somebody who is a, a quantum cryptographer who sees this coming. So he, he buys a ruined farmhouse on Bodmin, you know, as far from a city as he can get, where he and his family can survive. And I, it's, it's, my, it's like all my books, it's mainly about characters. Can you hear Basil? I can indeed. This is Basil. Hi, Basil. He's very, very talkative. Oh, um, he's lovely. Yeah. He's very musical as well. He's got a musical cat. Yeah. Uh, he, actually, funny you should say that, but he'd hear this cat adores music. Yeah. If, if I'm if I'm playing music, he always comes in and listens. Brilliant. The other cats aren't bothered. Philistine. Yeah. And anyway, so so I, I said, and the, the disaster doesn't actually happen till the last page anyway. So it's, it's as I say, it's mostly about the characters um, doing what they're doing on Bodmin Moor, and because subatomic physics is so weird, um. I, a lot of it is reflecting on the, the philosophical consequences of the idea that, for example, something can be in two places at the same time, you know? Yeah. A switch can be on and off at the same time. Um, it's really extraordinary, and it, it, it's, it's, it's an Alice in Wonderland world. So the novel is definitely a bit strange. I mean, when, when my agent sent it to my publisher, she, she said, I saw what she'd written. She said, she said, this is really weird and mad, but I think you'll like it. <laughs> <laughs> this is really weird and mad, but I think you'll like it. I think that's a very good, that's a very good uh, way of, of an epigram to go with your interview. That's great. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, on, on, uh, again, so many of our writers that write on are fantasy mm. kind of writers. And I think, I think, well, here's one, here's one in front of us who's there. <laughs> gone off a little bit in that realm but um I think it's very niche so I, I really like what you say there that it's mostly about characters because I think a lot of that kind of futuristic writing is about worlds rather than characters and, and I think that's what puts me off it actually yes and, yeah. and quite spectacular action if you know what I mean yeah. whereas whereas the, the, this this story is is it's it is definitely by me and just a little bit more weird <laughs> it is good. I think we've come to the end of anything I wanted to ask you, Louis. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed listening to our interview with Louis de Bernier. We'll share links so you can find out more about him in the show notes for this podcast. like to share your writing with us you can do so via pentaprint.org forward slash get hyphen involved forward slash submit hyphen to hyphen write hyphen on we're always delighted to read your contributions so if you'd like to see your words in write on or hear them on this podcast please get in touch we'll share this link and all others mentioned in today's podcast as part of our show notes I've been Tiffany Clare, and you've been listening to Write on Audio. Write on Audio is produced by Chris Gregory, and it's an alternative stories production for pen to print.